Hey everyone, this is Kurt Mercadante, and whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, I want to thank you for choosing to spend your time with me and our guests here on Freedom Mindset Radio. You know, now more than ever in this turbulent time, it's important to share and spread our message of freedom and fulfillment around the globe. So if you get value from this podcast, I have a favor to ask. If you could go wherever you listen to this podcast and leave us a positive rating and review, that helps us carry our message further around the globe. And if you wouldn't mind, Post a link to this podcast on your Facebook page. Share it on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, wherever you're at on social media. I want to thank you for helping us take our message to those people around the globe who truly need it. And I want to thank you for being a loyal listener. Thank you. Everyone wants to be more creative. And those moments of innovation, that moment of genius, that crazy idea, it comes when you're in the shower, when you're sat in the chair, when you're daydreaming. But now, even if you sat on a train gazing out the window, it's your phone that you're going to be looking at. What does the word freedom mean to you? Only you can define it in your life and only you can decide to build the life of freedom and fulfillment you deserve. This is Freedom Mindset Radio. I'm your host, Kurt Mercadante, and we're grateful you're here. All right. And today we have a wonderful guest, my friend. You might know him from Tech Talks Daily, the mega tech podcast. You may know him from the fact that he's been a LinkedIn top voice, or you may know him from his best selling new book, TED Talks, a uh, great TED Talks innovation. We're here with Neil Hughes, author, TED podcast, or tech podcaster. Gosh, I can't get that word TED right. (laughs) Tech podcaster, extraordinaire, author, blogger, writer. Neil, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me, Kurt. Try saying that again after a few beers, though, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> TED, Tech, TEDx. You know, I always want to say TEDx because there's a lot of people who who always want to get on the TEDx stage. Um, well, Neil, I got to tell you that, that I really enjoyed the book. Um, as someone who likes to absorb as much kind of wisdom and knowledge from people who have been there and done a variety of different things in their life, I love the book. And, and it's a book that you can easily consume at once, you can just kind of come back to it. It's kind of like, you know, Tim Ferriss has tools of Titans or tribe of mentors. It's just a lot of nuggets of wisdom that are easily presented that then there's the link to go view the full um, TED Talk. So I know this is a series of, of similar books uh, on TED Talks. Can you tell us how you came to be involved with this project? Yeah, it was one of those serendipitous moments, really. It all began with through my podcast because I've obviously interviewed a lot of people that do tech t- tech TED talks. See, it's it's tougher. It's, it's harder than you think. <laughs> <laughs> so, as an example, there's people like John Scully, who was famous for firing Steve Jobs, Guy Kawasaki, Gary Vaynerchuk. So, I've been very fortunate to interview a lot of these people that have done TED talks. And I had a an e- a random email appear from a publisher saying, "No, you've interviewed a thousand people, would you be interested in writing a book about it and about TED Talks and innovation? We'll give you complete artistic freedom to how you structure the book and how you want to deliver that message, but would you be interested in doing it? So I cautiously um, replied saying, yes, I would do it, um, but found out a little bit more information. The, the rest is history, really. So I, I really enjoyed just putting the structure together more than anything, because there's a lot of things that about innovation that I don't like, or should I say the myth of innovation, such as foosballs, only creative people can do it, and uh, 
get a room full of bean bags and just go away and innovate everyone. There's a lot of things, myths like that. I just wanted to banish once and for all. Yeah, there's, um, and that's the thing, right? There's this myth of the aha moment yeah, and that geniuses just are geniuses. Um, but a lot of common themes that were in the book that I found was, was one of self-awareness and looking inward mm-hmm. rather than looking outward. Uh, really the importance of community and collaboration. That is in a number of different sections in your book from a number of different speakers and the importance of having that free flow of ideas which leads to another one. I mean, there was a chapter, Rules Are for Fools, and that everyone gets into these, these strict rules of productivity and what we shall do and how those rules can... Uh, and some of them are rules to foster creativity, which is kind of counterproductive, yeah. right? Um, and then another piece, which, which I'd love to get into on, on a deeper level here, you know, as someone who, through TED Talks Daily, regularly interviews folks... Uh, in the innovation and tech realm. And a lot of that tech is meant to what? Distract us. And you share the quote from, uh, from uh, Reed Hoffman at Netflix, who said, yeah, like, our biggest competition is sleep, right? Um, but in that world where the distractions, heck, we're providing distractions right now, but, yeah. but you know, for, for people, but hey, it's good. We're, we're, we're good. We're, we're, we're a good distraction, but it prevents people from that deep thought that can lead to creativity. So uh, those are some of the common themes I saw. Um, I'm curious to you, what what were some of the, I mean, you had to, to prepare for this book. You had to watch a lot. I mean, there's, it's not a hundred because some of your sections have, or chapters have two or three TED talkers per yeah. section. So you had to write a lot. Were there any specifically that stood out for you that you can remember? Wow. Well, there's, there's, I think I must have watched about over 500 TED Talks. And another thing that I was very conscious in doing as well is these TED Talks all over the world. So I just didn't want to fill it with TED Talks of big familiar names from Silicon Valley. I wanted to try and get people from all over Europe, Asia, and and indeed the whole world. But if I think of the ones that really stood out, I'm going to have to go with some of the big names because for me there was... um, Guy, Kawas- Guy Kawasaki was talking mm. about what lessons he learned from Steve Jobs. And I was lucky to interview him away from the TED Talk stage as well. And I said, well, what was the one thing that you learned from Steve Jobs? And I think one of the things he said was, customers cannot help you innovate because all they will do is make you, uh, will help you make more of the same faster better and cheaper. And I think we're living in an age at the moment of customer focus groups where the customer is always right and we're going out to the customer. And and I think that point really resonated with me because I I think customers cannot help you innovate. And if I go away from the TED Talks for a moment and on to Noel Gallagher, the lead singer of Oasis, he was saying that the problem with customer focus groups is they... Um, what, was I, what was he saying? I lost my train of thought there. I went because I've digressed. Cust- yeah, customer focus groups and uh, and uh, yeah. Oasis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was saying that. You know, essentially, the public never wanted the Sex Pistols. They never wanted Pink Floyd. It was everything that they didn't want, but they got they were delivered to them because of extra creativity or whatever, and they just embraced it and took it to them. But none of that stuff would come from a customer focus group. It's interesting too, because you know, from a branding standpoint. You want to speak to the impact that a customer is going to get to. You know, you want to speak to the outcomes, but it's a fine line because, you know, Steve Jobs was very good at speaking to the end impact while also creating things that customers had never thought of 
ever, but he still did it. Like, like I think of, you know, uh, talk about innovation here, you know, when he did this, when Steve Jobs went and did the think different campaign and he launched that and he said, the way we're going to, that we're going to bring the brand back isn't by talking about products or features or bells or whistles or megahertz or Microsoft. It's to create something deeper. And he created the, the, uh, there was a think different campaign, which had Albert Einstein and Muhammad Ali and Martin Luther King Jr. But then he also had, um, uh, you know, he cre- the vision statement he came up with was that people with passion can change the world for the better. And it's interesting because there's nothing in there about an iPad, an iPhone, uh, uh, I whatever, right? Because those hadn't even been, th- well, he may have thought of it at that point. But he was speaking to the end impact that people are going to get, which allowed him the flexibility to kind of create whatever the hell he wanted, right? Yeah. Because it, it, that, that vision provided the overall umbrella. And he's like, well, if I could put 10,000 songs in your hand, that's giving you the ability to have more passion and create, et cetera. And on that same Apple theme, again, John Scully, he was a great guy. He was talking about um, if, if you give one tip for innovation, it would be to be curious and take risks. And again, we're now in a world where we don't, uh, channel our open mm. curious, curious mind. We lock ourselves in echo chambers on platforms such as Facebook, which will spoon feed us our own opinions right back at us. But it's that curiosity and questioning things and expanding your worldview that is is so important. And another thing that uh, John Scully was saying, for people that don't know, before he was the Apple CEO, he was the CEO at Pepsi. And there was an infamous moment where Steve Jobs approached him and said, do you want to come and change the world or do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your days? And of course he went and the rest is history. But what I'm fascinated by is those early years. And mm. when you think of John Scully, the Apple CEO, the, the big cheese at, at Pepsi, what you don't hear about, and the story he shared with me was he used to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning. He was the guy driving the Pepsi trucks. He was the guy putting the um, the roof roof signs up in Phoenix at, at 6 o'clock in the morning before that deadly heat hit. And um, he, he was also sharing with you, there was one particular moment that he said where he was listening to a conversation between Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And that moment on its own is quite special because I think we all assume that the two didn't get on. But they were talking about the importance of having a noble cause and how important that is. And essentially they were saying that they were creating uh, computers as a tool for empowering people, one mind at a time, one person at a time. And the most important thing is no matter what you're doing in life is to have that noble cause and want to make a difference. And that was quite a special moment as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about uh, Scully, you know, back when he was stacking the shelves. Yeah. Because um, another piece that's that's in, I was actually just looking for the quote, but I think it's in, in a few different places, is those times of just zoning out is many times. Uh, Catherine yeah. Courage in, in the book and, and talks at, well, on your TEDx talk, or TED talk, gosh, I can't say TED, TEDx, <laughs> talks about the importance of daydreaming. And, you yeah. know, it's funny, I, rem- I remember thinking back, uh, there were summers when I was in college and even before my brother got me a job working in a warehouse. And they sold, uh, the company sold, uh, what did they sell? Venetian blinds. And it was mindless under the fluorescent lights in a warehouse and I'd have to, pick up these huge things, carry them, put them up, stack them, and then do inventory. There was nothing to do. It was mindless labor. There was nothing to do but daydream. 
Yeah. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm not going to do this forever. I hate doing this. I'm not going to do this forever and coming up with things. Now I, I didn't, I wasn't thinking of better ways to sell Venetian blinds, but I could see where Scully had that time of just mindless labor and doing the truck and thinking, you know what, there's a better way to do this. And I'm going to run this damn company some way. Yeah. Whereas if, if, you know, I, I find a lot of times when you don't allow yourself to get in that flow of, of nothing. And when you try so hard to think and be innovative, those are the times you can't think of anything, right? It's, yeah. it's those daydreaming times during mindless labor, or, you know, maybe you're in the shower or out for a walk. And I'm so glad you picked up on that because I think one of the biggest casualties of our digital lifestyle is we've lost the ability to daydream. And I challenge anyone watching this or listening to it later, if they're sat in their favourite armchair for 10 minutes um, or they've gone out for a walk, how long do they leave it before they pick up that smartphone? Because there's always a notification just waiting to give you that next dopamine hit and you pick it up. I mean, some people can't even go to the toilet, the lavatory, you know, without right. taking their phone in there. And those moments of innovation, that moment of genius, that crazy idea, it comes when you're in the shower, when you're sat in the chair, when you're daydreaming. But now, even if you sat on a train gazing out the window, it's your phone that you're going to be looking at, not out the window. And, and I think that's the sad moment, really, because everyone wants to be more creative and just taking a walk, unplugging your ears and just soaking up the, the environment around you. That's where it all comes from. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, you know, Tim Ferriss talks about the importance of not waking up and checking your email first thing in the morning and not checking your cell phone because you are, I'm paraphrasing him, you become a slave to someone else's agenda for your day. Yes. Um, and there are, when I talk about this, there are people who get upset, but I got to be productive and I have to be more productive. It's like, well, is that productivity or is that just like extending your day and giving it up your, you know, some, something up to someone else. Uh, and Aaron, Aaron joins us by the way, on LinkedIn, Aaron Urban, she says hello, but she also talks about daydreaming, uh, getting into that state of flow. And she said her, her best and most inspirational moments are when she's riding her bike but I find there it's yeah. especially now, and, and Neil, you and I have talked about this offline. There is so much noise out in the world, especially now. And you and I joke about the rabbit hole, you know, and things. And <laughs> oh my gosh, I wake up in the morning and I'm getting dinged on my news, and I'm so mad about what President Trump did or Boris did or whoever did. And I, I tell people, well, is Trump in your living room right now, preventing you from yeah. going to the gym, preventing you from doing, you know, focusing on your outcomes and getting those things done? But when we do that, man, we're taken away from the signal. And these tools that we have, I mean, I have an iPad here with handwritten notes from your book. I'm looking into the laptop right now. I have, you know, I have my cell phone here, although because I was doing sales calls before, but I try to get rid of it. And they're tools that can really improve our lives. But they can also kind of ruin our lives. I mean, the addictions, the, the distractions, the, uh, Cal Newport, you know, I don't know if you know, Cal Newport writes a digital minimalism and talks about you the ability to get into that deep work state yeah. is so important, not just to creativity, but to, um, I believe in his book, he writes also about, you know, when you're distracted, and people think they're multitasking and they're really not right. It takes on average like 23 minutes to be, to, to write yourself. Well, if you're constantly doing a stop and start throughout the day, man, 
it just it, it jumbles your brain, doesn't it? <laughs> really? Well, it started to feel to me like I was living in an episode of the the Truman Show because from the moment I wake up, yes, I'm the guy that's guilty that picks up his phone. It's the only junk email I can delete here quickly before I start my day. But then I quickly noticed that before I knew what was happening, I was on Twitter, and then all of a sudden, there's mm, a, yeah. a whole ready-made narrative of this is what everyone's going to talk about today. You're going to talk about this. You're going to chat about it around the water cooler, mo- the water cooler, and then tomorrow, don't worry, there'll be another narrative ready for you, ready to go. And I, I don't know. I just felt like it was all too contrived, and I was being guided in in some way, shape, or form. And it, I don't know. It just frustrates me a little. Yeah, I have. And by the way, we're getting a lot of great comments here on LinkedIn, whether you're joining us on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, jump in, say hello, let us know your comments, your questions, your agreements, your disagreements, uh, questions for Neil. Uh, In addition, uh, let us know where in the world you're joining us from. We have Aaron Urban joining us from the countryside, the hinterlands of Texas somewhere near Houston, I know. Um, We have Liam joining us. He says, love that. He gets some of his best ideas while out running. Uh, He also says, no phone, no social media, and no distractions. Um, You know, Neil, I think it's, uh, we're going away from the book a bit, but, um, uh, but but I think it's relevant to many of the key themes that are in the book. You know, it's Peter Thiel writes about, you know, we wanted flying, what do you say? I think from Teal uh, Ventures or whatever his company is, what do they have? We wanted flying cars and all we got was 140 characters. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you look at a lot of the innovation that's taking place and you compare it to innovation that was made 150 years ago that really took down, say, a factory from 20 workers to 10 or, or safety or whatever. And it's interesting that a lot of things we thought were really kind of maybe useless uh, technology had become people's foundation and lifeblood during COVID. You know, I mean, like what we're doing now or Zoom. And Zoom was kind of a, yeah, we'll do it if we have to. And now it's uh, schools, you know, the growth, uh, my wife's a speech language pathologist, the growth in telehealth Uh, I mean, doctors growing in telehealth. I went to a doctor appointment about a month ago and it was on FaceTime. It was incredible. And I didn't have to go in. Um, Where, I guess, where do you see some of these, um, from a perspective of productivity and, uh, and innovation and mental health? Where do you see it headed, you know, as you talk to, to, to folks? Because on, on your, I mean, you have, you're like a workhorse. Do you do seven a week now or six? Uh, I rec- I rec- well, I book in 10 a week just in case I get any cancellations. But here's a funny story on that. Typically, I book in 10 because there is always cancellations because Bob's in a meeting or Sarah's got to fly somewhere. But because of COVID during the, the, the pandemic, those 10 people were turning up on time every day, every week. So that's probably one of the the, uh, the positive aspects of the pandemic. <laughs> people turned up for their podcast recording. Yeah, I've noticed that I, hosting <laughs> webinars, like people are are showing up. It's amazing. But you also have a lot of people who are bouncing from free thing to free thing too. So it's, it, it's, it's interesting from that, that respect. People are, mm. when people, when, when this is all over and people are no longer going to go away their stuff for free, they might have a rude awakening. Um, but where do you, I mean, you, you interview, probably, you talk to more people in tech, more innovative people on a regular basis, probably than just about anyone. I mean, 10 a week you're booking in. Plus, in non-COVID times, you're going around 
you are, um, you're, you're going to these events, you're interviewing people. Is there a rumbling of, yeah, Hey, these are great. And we're changing the world with this innovation, but we're also, uh, you know, humans now have the, uh, what is it? The attention span of a goldfish. Um, is there ever any talk about that from a, you know, there's a lot of talk in Silicon Valley. My goodness, they, they're all about social responsibility when it comes to certain topics. You know, you want to talk about the climate? Oh, God, they'll talk to you all day about that. You want to yeah. talk about something else. But what about the other impacts of what they're doing from a mood perspective? A, I mean, there was that famous uh, in 2012, right? The, the Facebook experiment where they, they uh, messed with people's timelines to, to, to ramp their mood up and down. From a sociability, social responsibility aspect there, are there rumblings of that in Silicon Valley or is that not, do they not consider that in the realm of social responsibility? I think there are two main themes at the moment. One of the first is that, yes, we're in a great period of uncertainty and people are going to have to do more with less. So I think that is a huge catalyst for innovation. So I think we're going to see a lot more innovation from a lot of companies. And something else which is a little bit controversial, we're going to see more and more of, and that, that is automation. And straight away, people will think, the robots are coming to take my job, or, uh, I'm going to be made redundant, uh, this, that, and the other. But maybe I'm an eternal optimist, but there's a hopeful side of me that thinks, actually, we're actually being set set free from that robotic lifestyle of sat at a machine nine till five every day, just hitting the button, automatic processes and things that can be just automated by a machine. So I think we're getting to the point where let the machines do all that boring, repetitive, mundane stuff, and then bring the people back in and then try and get them to compete in areas where technology cannot compete at all. And we're talking about management, leadership, uh, creativity, and all those kind of areas. And that way, we're going to be more fulfilled as humans. And on the other side of that, I think there's a, the other debate of uh, working at home versus working in the office. And I think we need to get far, far away from that because the reality is somewhere in the middle. And that is some tasks are going to be in the office, some tasks are going to be at home. And the companies that actually succeed in the future, I think, are not going to be the ones that embrace automation and make half their workforce redundant. The ones that succeed are going to be the ones that make the most of both worlds, where they leverage technology to do all the boring, mundane stuff, and then they really invest in their people in the other areas to bring value and move quicker. Because it's not tech versus humans. It's not working from home versus um, working in the office. Everything is somewhere in the middle and the best of both worlds. And Again, from the tech world, I think that's binary thinking that we've all got lost in at the moment. Everything's very polarised, left versus right, black mm -hmm. versus white, um, hot versus cold, I'm right versus you're wrong. Well, the reality is life's just not like that. It's that very grey line right down the middle. And I say maybe I'm optimistic, but that's the way I see things heading. Yeah. And, and, you know, on that note, you know, right now people are uh, working from home, schooling from home. Um, but also you have companies announcing that for the rest of the year or until further notice, people are going to, uh, can work from remotely for the rest of the year or as they choose. Yeah. But there's a quote from, I'm going to butcher her last name in your book from Tanya, is it Menon or Manone? Tanya mm -hmm. Manone. Uh, but she writes, 
Think of yourself as an atom, bumping up against other atoms, transferring energy with them, bonding with them a little, and maybe creating something new on your travels through the social universe. Um, in that same topic, or in that same chapter, um, they talk about, Susan Cain talks about offices being places where you encourage, this is her quote, casual, chatty, cafe-style types of interactions, the kind where people come together and serendipitously have an exchange of ideas. Um, in a world where we might all be at home, <laughs> working from home or, or, or working from Zoom, how does that happen? You know, how, how do you create those innovative areas? I, I know some people who are innovating in their use of Zoom, Mm -hmm. But there's also a, you know, my wife's a speech language pathologist and they're trying to figure out how there's something different when you sit with someone Definitely. and you're less than, you're closer than six feet, you know, the social distancing yeah. and you can see certain things, uh, facial, mo you know, uh, and this is another thing she's concerned about with masks, especially for, for, with autism, things like that, where you can't see facial expressions, mm -hmm. um, do you think someone's going to have to innovate out of the innovation to figure out a way to make us more social with the social distancing? If that even makes any sense, what I just said. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, it makes complete sense. But I honestly don't think you can have you only work from home, although there is a lot of startups out there that have distributed teams from all over the world and they're able to leverage the best tech skills at a very low price. And they can have your colleague could be, I don't know, in Prague and somebody else could be in Slovakia and somebody else could be in India, somebody else in San Francisco. And they all seem to work quite well together. But for me personally, I think it's the best of both worlds. You're going to need some time in the office. You're going to need some time working from home. But too much of either is no good. And plus, we've all got different personalities. Some of us like to meet in person. Some of us are more introverted and want to be away from the office and work better uh, alone. But I think I don't think there's one fix for absolutely everything. I really don't. But uh, yeah. it's going to be interesting where, where we end up here. Yeah. And I, you know, someone like I, I've worked at home kind of alone for 15 years and, um, I've actually kind of enjoyed <laughs> the last few months, but, uh, Aaron, Aaron comments, the crisis has helped me become more focused, but it required me to unplug from inputs that were causing more harm than good, like news and Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that yeah. weekend when there were riots, you know, we, we don't, we don't watch the news here, but it was five miles from our house. So I got, I kind of got sucked in and realized I woke up Monday and my mindset was just in the toilet. Um, so you, you gotta be careful with that and know what's going on, but my goodness, you know, turn off the news. <laughs> How many times when you do that, when you switch off the news, you put your phone down and you go for a walk and you think, whoa, all I hear is uh, crickets, you know, it's, it's, it's right? not all that hatred that's going on that, that's being perpetuated in the media. So I think it does you good just to just get out there and have a walk around. It, it was interesting uh, last night. So um, I was watching, um, uh, you know, we have our major league soccer here, which yes, I know it's not the premier league, <laughs> but um, you know, they are, they're having their MLS's back tournament and they're playing and, you know, ESPN has the news Chiron, or the, you know, below showing you news. And there was a poll showing that like, I think it was around 65% of fans say they have a great appreciation for sports now that it's been gone. Yeah. Uh, amongst avid fans, it was like 80 something percent. It's, it's an interesting thing, right? That uh, maybe it's a reminder that when things come back, should be a lot more grateful for being able to hear the crickets and taking those walks 
and being able to go to a sporting event. Because when we have them and it becomes second nature, it's like, oh, well, it's boring. And you become so overloaded with stimuli that you just don't care about it. But when some of that stuff's taken away, you really have a greater appreciation for it, don't you? Absolutely. And two other stories I'm hearing from over the US, two common things I'm hearing from over there is in San Francisco, there's a lot of people moving out. You know, they're paying three and a half thousand dollars a month for a one bedroom apartment. Uh, But now they don't need to go into the office every day. They can move out of San Francisco and work somewhere else. And from there, I'm hearing a lot of things in places like Phoenix, Arizona, where they're saying, hey, come come over here. We've got a lot of tech companies. It's much cheaper to live. You'll have a better standard of living. So I think it, it could just shape everything up. Yeah. It, it, you know, here in South Carolina and, and, you know, the media has been insane, right. During this whole, this whole thing. And I think the fact that we have one of the most divisive presidential campaigns in history, uh, in the midst of a pandemic, you know, you know, California heavily locked down, they all wear masks and all of a sudden they're having a surge in cases but you don't really hear about them as being irresponsible, right? But we have we have a, a surge here in South Carolina, and suddenly we're we're stupid and we're irresponsible. There's certainly politics playing into that, right? Uh, a red versus blue, north versus south type thing. But yeah, you are seeing now. You know, we're putting our house on the market, and we're going to travel. Some interesting things I'm seeing are first of all, a ton of people moving down here to the sun, where we opened up quicker where the economy was better beforehand, where we have lower taxes, those types of things. And you're seeing an influx of people saying, I'm getting the heck out of here from an Illinois or a New York. The other piece is, you know, as we move, we're going to travel for a couple of years. We're looking into the like virtual mailbox options that come with different things. And some of these are, there's, they're newer and they're overloaded by the explosion of growth. I've been on some of these websites. We're not going to live in an RV, but on some of these websites, digital nomad websites for RV culture, where people get the recreational vehicle and they travel around, it's exploding. The amount of people who are like, listen, I don't want to be tied down anymore. Uh, I don't want to pay the property taxes. I don't want to have my mortgage and whatever. We're just going to travel. But there's so many other pieces, right, with education, with schooling, um, with, you know, everyone is homeschoolers now. We've homeschooled for a long time, and now people are figuring out how to do that. You have now this movement of teachers quitting because they're like, I don't want to put up with it anymore. And there could be a growth in micro schools where teachers become entrepreneurs, and instead of working for the government, they're like, listen, let's get 10 students together in the neighborhood. You pay me X amount. And by the way, I'm going to make three times as much as I did as a teacher. And your kids are going to get better education because of it. There's so many interesting things that are going to shake out probably more so I would say than like during world war two, when you had a lot of, you know, new technologies come out of the war. I I, I just, and and it's, it's going to make 2007, 2008 look tiny by comparison. It's phenomenal. I mean, you think, what, six months ago, like you said a few moments ago, nobody was interested in video conferencing and Zoom calls. It was all a little bit awkward, not interested at all. Not even our grandparents are using it every day to speak to their grandkids. It's just one of those things that everybody's overcome their hurdles, overcome their learning curve, and just straight in, I get it now, why aren't we doing this before? And then you've got the the location independent thing. I mean, such as yourself, you can work from anywhere. You know, you don't need to be locked down to 
that location, that house, you can, as long as you've got a laptop, a coffee shop with free Wi-Fi or something, you can literally work from anywhere. And I think it's, it's like a, a switch has been flicked and people are just starting to think completely different now. Hey everyone, this is Kurt Mercadante and I want to thank you for being a loyal listener to Freedom Mindset Radio. You know, in this chaotic time of coronavirus chaos, it's so important for people to have a process to define, create, and live their lives of freedom and fulfillment. I lay out just that process in my Amazon bestseller, Five Pillars of the Freedom Lifestyle. And in light of this turbulent time, I've dropped the Kindle price of my book to $4.50. That's a more than $2 drop in price. I do this because I truly believe that this is a process that will help those who need freedom and fulfillment now. Perhaps it's you. Perhaps you have spent the past five years, 10 years, 15 years trading away your freedom and fulfillment for a false sense of security and a toxic job and a lifestyle that doesn't fulfill you. And now you're realizing that security was an illusion and you want your freedom now. Go to fivepillarsoffreedom.com right now. There, you can get chapter one of my book absolutely free, and there's a link to purchase the book. As I said, we have dropped the price to $4.50 for the Kindle version of my book. I know the five pillars of the freedom lifestyle will help you define, create, and start living your freedom lifestyle now. Thanks again for being a listener. I wish you a day, a week, a year of freedom and abundance. Yeah, it, it's, it, and it shows also how we have to um, unlearn, right? Yeah. Um, and, and unlearn what we think we know. Because when you, when you go into something and you think, well, I'm really smart and I have a lot of wisdom, what you really are is biased, yeah. <laughs> right. Bias to what, you know, and bias to what's be, been done before. But when you talk about, you know, what guy Kawasaki said or a Steve jobs, um, or Jeff Bezos, yeah. who, who you write about in the book, these are things that people thought were stupid. You know, Steve jobs created that reality distortion field. Um, and you write, uh, actually I have it right here on page 183 in terms of, uh, from Jeff Bezos's 2007 talk, the electricity metaphor for the web's future and how he tried a lot of new things. Well, aside from selling books online, but it was, and it's so funny to think now in this culture where everything is reviewed and we kind of, yeah. I call it a rotten tomatoes culture. Like we don't do anything until we check the reviews. Um, <laughs> is how he faced a backlash when they first wanted to allow reviews of books. And what his quote was, if you're going to do anything new or innovative, you have to be willing to mis be misunderstood. And he says, there are two ways to extend a business. Take inventory of what you're good at and extend out from your skills or determine what your customers need and work backward, even if it requires learning new skills. But again, that goes to what we talked about at the beginning of, find out what your customers need, even if they don't know that they need it or want it at this point, right? <laughs> and it's like, I think you've referenced this in one of your recent podcast episodes about the Bill Gates on the Letterman show in, yeah, right. was it like 95 or something like that? And he was talking about the internet and the audience mocked him, David Letterman mocked him, email, internet, who needs that? I'll never take off. And there's a similar clip online, if I urge anyone to look it up, with David Bowie. 
And he was talking about how it will de- uh, democratise music and change the music scene. And everyone just laughed and mocked him as well. But it, it really shows you, doesn't it? We just don't listen at that moment in time. But looking back, but if we go back to the Steve Jobs quote, it's not until you can't join up the dots looking forward. It's only when you look back, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, now you're yeah, now you're you're bringing in our uh, our good friend David Ralph. Join up dots. <laughs> um, but it's exactly that that's exactly right. And I actually hadn't heard that quote until I was on David's podcast. And yeah. I just absolutely love it. Um, because from a mindset perspective, I believe you have to put yourself in your future vision that you desire and act like you've been there before. In your mind, you trick your mind into believing that your future vision that you desire is actually a memory. Um, but again, it's harder to do that, right? If you're constantly distracted by yeah. the emergency or the urgent need of the moment based on emails, notifications, ding, 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 um, yeah. that, that'll just mess you up. Yeah. And the, the other words, of course, that they always say is, uh, is completely dangerous to innovation is, uh, but we've always done it that way. There's no words more dangerous to that than any business or individual. And I suppose that ties in with the rules are for fools chapter in the book, you know, because sometimes you just need to mix things up a bit. And I do think we, we kind of get lost sometimes. That's the creative group over there. Put them in a room, give them a foosball table and say, go away and create. Whereas everyone's got a voice in this and it's that diversity of thought whether it be the guy that's like 62 and uh, has got some great ideas, he's seen all the problems, he knows how to fix them, or someone that's been in the company for six months and thinks, really, you do it this way? (laughs) But you need to get all those voices in a room and and then start solving real problems. And then only when you know what the problem is, you've identified it, then go looking at the technology side of it. Because I think we've all seen a lot of people go in them rooms and say, well, what about this solution? What about that solution? Well, you should always start with the problem. Now, Neil, one thing I did notice in the book that I love, and it's on page 12, at least on the Kindle version, in chapter three. I don't know if you consider these chapters or just section three out of 100, uh, but when you, you, you talk about uh, Giovanni Carazza from the Marconi Institute of Creativity, you use one of my favorite terms. It was the subtitle of my book, Comfort Zone of Misery. I saw that <laughs> and I'm like, yes, yes. He used it. I love it. I love it. Um, but I saw that and, and I loved it. But but you use it in terms of climbing out of the comfort zone of misery. You write that he says he's the, he's the founder of the Marconi Institute of Creativity. He dared to explore what happens when you climb out of your comfort zone of misery to generate ideas. And in his TED Talk, Karatsa talks about, quote, a boundary within our minds, the boundary between what we know and what we haven't still or yet thought about uh, creative thinking and thinking creatively. And what I always like to say that, you know, if you look around right now, I mean, I, I'm looking, you have a couch behind you, brick wall, you have your mic, you have your shirt, you have your headphones, all of that stuff started out, your business, your podcast started out as a thought. Yeah. That thought then turned into an idea, which then led to actions, which created results. And those results are basically the manifest manifestation of those initial thoughts turned into ideas. But if before the thoughts has to come that freedom of thought and mindset and beliefs. So a lot of people focus on the end and they put a plan for productivity in place. And this kind of this is kind of in, in, in the rules are for fools chapter where you quote Paul Krugman. It's all about productivity. Well, no, you, you could be really productive on stuff you hate. 
Yeah. And, but in order to get to that point, boy, you gotta, you gotta free yourself up. And the opening quote before you even start the book is from Richard Branson, when he says innovation happens when people are given the freedom to ask questions and the resources and power to find the answers. But uh, I, I love seeing that it all goes back to freedom, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. And I, I must admit, I did uh, borrow, or should I say lift your phrase slightly? You're I'm sure I, by. I, probably, I probably stole it from someone, I'm sure. So yeah, I don't know, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another great quote that I remember today. I, I'm sorry for any uh, Apple haters out there for being so Apple-centric on this. But Steve Wozniak, one of the things that he said that I featured in the book was try to think of new ways to solve old problems because very often we look at something we have and say i could make it better and just that on its own that is innovation because i think there are so many misdefinitions of what innovation is and i think that kind of nails and captures it too yeah yeah um it's uh, there's a great book called the creative uh, curve by alan gannett he's on linkedin i don't know if you know him and his entire book is about shattering the myth of the aha moment yeah and he really talks about a number of ways to get there, which are really solidified and, and underlined in your book, which, some of which we've talked about, but, you know, right brain, left brain, you know, why, why some people come up with thoughts in the shower? It's because yeah. when you do that mindless thing, you, you know, you're opening up your mind or why it's when you're out for a walk. Um, we, I was at a sales boot camp about a month ago and there was a woman there, an entrepreneur who was really, um, uh, terrified of getting on the phone, like, you know, really almost in tears. And once she got to do it, she got used to it, but still would get nervous sitting there. I said, you know what I've tried? And, and I've tried with some people is make your calls while you're out for a walk, whatever it is, you're distracted enough. It's kinetic. You're going and you feel like it's okay. But when you sit there and you're almost trapped in, a, in an area in space, but I found that with the creative thinking too, and Alan writes about it and you underline that in a lot of places in your book that whether it's the creative thinking or communicating with people, uh, you know, Tony Robbins talks about waking up and priming yourself first thing in the morning and getting it going. Yeah. Um, it's getting in that flow of life and that, that, that flow of creativity that uh, TK Coleman, who, who actually brought up that Bill Gates example talks about, you know, that really the, the secret of life is that creative flow, whether you're a doctor making widgets, golf balls, selling consulting packages or writing books, getting in that creative flow where you allow the thoughts to turn into ideas and, and become real is so key. Absolutely. And two other big themes I try to get in there as well is it is about people, not technology, and also diversity of thought. And, and finally, it's a journey, not a destination, because I think there's so many businesses will say, well, we're going to get an innovation club together. We'll get cherry pick 10, 12 people that we think are innovative from various departments, put them all in a room, go innovate. OK, we've got some ideas. We'll try and implement them. That's it. We've done innovation. And it's not like that at, at, at all all of course it's uh, it's like a journey of continuous improvement and and that's what it should be about yeah i've, I've seen some uh kind of mastermind type things or uh, uh where you go and you do pitches and people give feedback yeah. and it's so anti-innovative mm -hmm. the way these are done the way the way some of these are set up because it's the way in which you give feedback and or if you have a if you have a group of people that is very homogeneous, 
And, you know, um, there's a local group here and they're, they're going to get pissed at me, but you have some people bringing innovative ideas and you're getting feedback from a room full of realtors. Like, yeah. okay. You, you know what I mean? And nothing against realtors, but let's get a diversity of thought of people who have had different experiences rather than trying to force it. And you being held back by the limits of what you know, or your programming or what you've been told and really mix it up in, in, in the mixing bowl and get it all together. Absolutely. Because if you're, if your diversity of thought, your diverse voice is not as diverse as your audience, as your consumers and your clients, then how, how can you serve them? There's no way that you can, unless you have that diversity of thought in place. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Neil, I want to shift gears for a little bit and, and, uh, move away from the book a bit. And by the way, uh, we're going to put in the show notes, the link to the book, you can grab it on Amazon. Was an Amazon bestseller. Uh, I have it on Kindle. I have the hard copy version as well. It is a, it is a great, wonderful book. Um, but you recently wrote, um, uh, an article on LinkedIn that had to do with the recent movement. You see all these boycotts of Facebook. Yeah. And, and the ads. And it raises so many questions about culture, about society, about, you know, this is in the midst of the Twitter fact-checking kind of uh, faux pas or, or whatever we want to call it, right? And, and you know, for, for, for ever, we've had newspapers who could take opinions on things. And now you have these social media giants that are kind of trying to have one leg on each side of the fence, right? I mean, straddle the fence. There you go. There, there's the saying, but they're trying to straddle the fence and it, it it's sometimes it's working. Sometimes it's not. And I, and I feel like all they do is just make people upset with them. I, I'm going to be featuring an interview here soon with Jordan Lieberman, who uh, is up in DC. We, we taped it before the, uh, the pandemic started and he's a leader in behavioral advertising and we talked about the fact that, you know, here in the U.S., obviously, we have the, we have the First Amendment, free speech. But, you know, free speech was always, you know, you talk about the public square. Yeah. Well, what's the public square now? And when you have the public square controlled by a handful of private media companies, it gets interesting, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and there's expectations. But you also have corporations that are... Well, whatever they're doing, right? Whether they're responding to public opinion or virtue signaling or whatever you want to talk about it. Now they're on it. We're going to pull our ads. And someone just, uh, you know, they're forcing our, Facebook is considering not having any political ads. Well, I just saw someone else saying, well, how's that going to affect, what are the dominoes? Because now you have small local political campaigns. I used to run political campaigns for years who have no budgets and in a pandemic can't go door to door. Yeah. So yeah, everyone's focused on, the presidential campaign, but from congressional on down, now you have campaigns that no one wants to pick up the phone. Supposedly they can't go door to door. Now you're going to, you know, the cheapest form of advertising they had now other companies aren't allowing political advertising. Now that's just in one sphere, but this is going to have, this is, this is a massive impact when, when Facebook has the size of what the, the globe uh, on, on its uh, piece there, small changes that they make reverberate everywhere. 
Yeah. And I think the dangerous thing is that these platforms are almost being weaponized. And you could say that's a little bit provocative thing to say, but we've got things like TikTok at the moment, which look like it it may or may not be banned over there in the US. And obviously we've got the, the situation with Facebook. And I say weaponized because what we need to remember is every single click, like, engagement, share, comment, post, group, every single thing is then stored away on a server somewhere and then used to spoon feed you more of the same. And I think it it begins to blur the lines a little bit. And if it can sway people's thinking, I mean, a lot of people think, well, they'll never get me. I can't be swayed that way. But it is very subtle and nuanced and you don't realize. Well, you see uh, people... um the uh, I interviewed uh, on the show back in February, General Robert Spaulding, who was in the National Security Council, one of the foremost China mm-hmm. Chinese strategists, uh, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and and he basically was forced out of his post because he was warning about Chinese control of five G networks. That if they got in, you know, they're using it for extreme facial recognition. We've seen it used in Hong Kong, but. They've used it for crime fighting, but also if you're at a pro-democracy protest and you're wearing a mask at a pro-democracy protest, it doesn't matter because what they can do is, is use facial recognition to track you all the way back to your home. Yeah. And what Spalding said was, you know, they're going into third world countries in Africa saying, hey, build out your infrastructure. We're going to build you these factories uh, and by the way, we're going to give you dirt cheap cell phones and we're going to build out your 5G network, but you have to give us access to the facial recognition. And we know that they're hacking companies over here. So for the people who say, well, so what? I have nothing to hide. Well, when you see what Facebook did in 2012 with messing with people's moods based on the timeline, right? Yeah. You see what's happening now where people are just getting so angry about everything yeah. and the more time they spend on Facebook... Well, what if China knows where you, where you shop, where you go to church, if you had your OBGYN uh, appointment, right? And where you go, if you bought a gun, what type of groups you're a member of. And, you know, right now we see, we see the riots and the protests here. And we saw peaceful protesters, but we also saw this kind of war of words over, well, it's the white supremacists. No, it's Antifa. Yeah. Well, they were both there. And the interesting thing is, they're not Russian agents or Chinese agents. They're willing idiots or useful idiots in the fact that here in Charleston, South Carolina, small Charleston, South Carolina, there are some professors in Clemson looking at foreign interference. We had a Facebook group here that was trying to organize a riot to, to uh, shatter the windows of a local restaurant. Had a whole bunch of people on it. They traced it back. That Facebook group was organized by a server in Russia. So they're creating Facebook groups. They know all of our habits. They know what makes us mad and what makes us happy. They create Facebook groups. And we think it's Jim in the town next door. And it's (laughs) some dude in Russia or someone in China creating these Facebook groups. So when people hear Russia and China, they think like, you know, like James Bond and people are being recruited. No, they're using the data that you've willingly given up to mess with your mind. And, and I, I just, I, I recently unfriended 4,000 something people on Facebook so that I wouldn't have to be on anymore. I'm just friends with my wife. And the only reason I'm on there is because I run some ads, you know, for my, <laughs> for my, for my page, but that might be done away with soon, but it was messing with my mind and my mood. And imagine 
if a foreign entity had control of that. So I think the, the, the word weaponization that you used is absolutely key, which leads us to the, the question of if Twitter, is, and I'm not making a political statement here, but if Twitter is going to fact check a statement from anyone and they're going to be the arbiter of truth, but then they allow, uh, there's a study that uh, 40% of, of COVID chatter on Twitter is bots. You know, a lot of that's from China and fa- what do you fact check and what do you not? Yeah. You know, if you, if you have Russian and Chinese trolls, you either gotta, you either gotta do everything or do nothing. And that, that's a, uh, that's a tall yeah. order. <laughs> it is. And, and then you, you're wandering into very dangerous territory as well, because there are some people out there that you may deem crazy with some crazy theories or or that you just don't agree with. But equally, should we be defending their right to, to say that crazy stuff if it's not hateful? And um, I don't know, it's, it's such... The lines are so blurred. And if you've got a handful of media companies controlling the narrative and saying, as long as you say this narrative, it's fine. We can broadcast it. But if anybody disagrees with that narrative, then I don't know, it's dangerous territory. But I do completely agree with anything hateful or hurtful to anyone else. But uh, if it's just about narratives, then I think it's a little bit dangerous as well. Yeah. And, 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 and even then with the hate, it's like these days, everything seems to be hateful. Yeah. Um, you know, the sky is blue. How could you bring up the color blue? Don't you know when I was five years old, the color blue was blah, blah, blah. Is that, you know, and then I'm banned. Uh, I deal with a lot of HR people, uh, you know, as clients and people I work with. And they said the uptick of, of complaints about things that, you know, are sticks and stones, you know, type yeah. things uh, is amazing. And, and um, it, it is interesting. And that, that, that fine line between innovation to improve our lives that can also start, uh, yeah. you know, mess with our minds or our health, um, as we're seeing as well, which could be a whole other show <laughs> about, <laughs> about things coming down the pike. Well, well, I think yeah. I think maybe maybe on that, if you think about, there's a few things we can come back to innovation that could help you on that, and that is one is the binary thinking side of things. If everything's polarized and hot or cold, left or right, don't fall for that. And then also have that curious mind. One of the great things of innovation, or to unlock innovation, is having a curious mind. Don't be afraid to question what you read and question the information that you're freely sharing on a social media site. As long as you got a curious mind and question everything and don't just blindly lead uh, you know, the left or the right, the hot or the cold, and don't fall for that binary thinking side of things. I, I do think there is a bit of hope out there. Well, um, kind of, you know, wrapping things up here, which is a perfect segue because it was the final thing I wanted to touch on and you led right to it without us even planning it, right? <laughs> and that curiosity. Yeah. Um, in the book, you write about uh, design leader, Catherine Courage, uh, who gave a TEDx to, or TED talk. Gosh, why do I keep reverting to TEDx? <laughs> it's fine. They're all getting free press, right? So Catherine Courage, and she talks about that as adults, we become laser focused on execution process and efficiency. And in doing so, we can neglect innovation. Um, and you write, as children, we question the world. We're curious about everything. Uh, but you, And you say that the average preschooler asks 100 questions a day. Yeah. And... I question whether or not we do that enough 
for, right? for the most part, no. I mean, how many times have you seen people angrily comment on a, a clickbait headline on something like Facebook that they've clearly not read the entire article? And equally, people that have shared an article that would clearly, without actually reading it, just read that clickbait headline, share with an outrage emoji at the bottom. Because we're not asking questions. We've not got that curious mind. And that... It's, it is worrying, I think. And, and a lot of times in this in this kind of screen culture, you know, it's when you ask questions, some people are afraid of asking questions because now if you ask a question about anything, suddenly you're a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. You know, um, even on things that are now two months later proving true. Um, but, it, but, but I think that goes beyond the innovation beyond, you know, I know people who will never question their doctors mm-hmm. about anything. And, you know, your doctor's 85 years old, has no nutrition classes and is telling you to eat more sugar or bread. Or I, I had someone on who was in the fitness realm and he said, I got, I got interested in health when my, my girlfriend had Crohn's disease. And the doctor said, yeah, go back to eating your Snickers bars. He's like, I don't know if a doctor should ever say, go back to eating your Snickers bars. Right. But yeah. people just, we put the, the, these doctors are gods. We have to listen to them. But then that translate, I, I think to uh, the majority, what does the majority of my Facebook friends say? Well, that's what I'm going to think today. And I'm not going to question that. And if I do question that, someone's going to yell at me. So I'm not going to question it anymore. We outsource our minds to, um, cable news and, and whatever people tell us. So, uh, yeah, I love, uh, I love that you talk about the curiosity and, and those, it's so wonderful in the book that I, I, I do see that, that common theme of freedom, freedom of creativity. I love that the the title rule of the chapter rules are for fools. It's not that you don't have guidelines and rules, but allowing that free thought and, and that knowledge, that creativity, it doesn't strike you like lightning. And it's not about tensing up real hard and thinking creative thoughts come to me right now. You know, it's about doing something else and getting in that flow of life to let it happen. And there's certainly a lot of technology out there that can help you do that. Yeah. if you use it in the right way. Yeah. And one, one thing I'd like to end on is something we've probably not talked about enough is the role of serendipity because I, mm. I think I've now interviewed, I think, 1,300 tech interviews I've, I've done now. And a lot of people say to me, but you've interviewed all these tech leaders from all over the world. What is the one thing that they all share? And I would, I would honestly say it's being open to serendipity, those little happy accidents in life. And the amount of times I've heard a guy that's flown to the other side of the world, to Silicon Valley, to to do his startup pitch to a, a VC and he's, he's put everything on that flight and walked away empty-handed. And just when he thinks it's all over, he's chatting to the guy at the garage, car- at the um, luggage carousel who happens to be a VC that invests. And then there's equally another guy that had this great idea that he wanted to bring to life, but he desperately needed a developer because his, his developer had left him in the lurch somewhat. And the guy sat next to him at 30,000 feet, ended up being his partner and developer. And I think it's just opening yourself up. So having that curious mind, yes, but also opening yourself up to those happy accidents in life. Because I think sometimes, I'm not a religious guy by any stretch of my imagination, but I think it's sometimes the universe does give us those little nudges in the direction when we need them, but we do need to look out for them and embrace them. Yeah, you got to be over. Bob Berg in his book talks about the law of receptivity. Mm-hmm. And when I first read the book, I didn't understand it at all. Like, yeah, I like to get, 
Of course I'd like to get, but it's different, right? It's not sitting there saying, why doesn't the world give me, give me, give me? Why doesn't this stuff come my way? And it's more about just kind of allowing it to happen. You got to move your feet, yeah. right? Because that, that, that serendipitous uh, meeting maybe one flight away, you know, where you were going to cancel that flight and just sit home and sit on your couch and watch Netflix, right? Yeah. But it's, it's taking that one more action and allowing that to happen. 100%. Well, we met serendipitously back in Denver a few years ago. It's been wonderful. Uh, I've loved got, getting to know you, Neil. Neil, where can everyone else get to know you? Uh, you they can get your book uh, on Amazon. We'll share the link in the, in the notes. Um, but tell us where best place download Ted talks daily, uh, tech talks daily. I think I said Ted talks, it's tech talks daily. The book is great. Ted talks, but tech talks daily, where can they get that? And where can they learn more about you? So tech talks daily can be on wherever you listen to your podcast, but my website is techblogwriter.co.uk. My email is techblogwriteroutlook.com. Uh, and on top of the daily tech podcast, I also host a podcast with Citrix called Tech Fusion and also one called Switched on Thinking with Netgear as well. So there are two other podcasts you might want to give a try as well, if you like technology, of course, and exploring the future of work. <laughs> 